0: Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, thanks for joining me. This is Levi Russell. Tonight I want to talk about labor, uh, specifically the way economics treats the issue of labor and how I think we need to understand it differently from the way the economics profession understands it so that we can get a better grasp on the moral implications of certain policies, um, and maybe how to solve uh, some problems that we have. So to start off with, uh, the, the, the way the economics profession conceives of labor in general, as a general concept, um, is that labor is simply uh, something that you have to do that you don't really want to do. Now that's called the marginal disutility of labor. Um, <clears throat> something that you have to do that you don't want to do, that you're compensated for that, 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 that gives some benefit to someone's production process. And so right out of the gate from a moral perspective, we're basically being told that this is something that's not good for us in and of itself, because if you, if you didn't have to do it to provide for your own short term needs, right, to provide for your own uh, financial needs then you would trade it off against leisure, and in fact, you do, uh, you know, you, you choose an amount of leisure, an amount of labor that uh, maximizes your utility. Uh, that's the way um, standard neoclassical economics puts the, the issue of choosing how much work you do. And of course, you know, the main thing to say is that this is an oversimplification. Now, of course, the economists would come back and say, well, of course, it's an oversimplification. We just need it to be simple so that we can manipulate the math in a certain way to get results that make sense. And, you know, generally this is a good enough way to talk about, you know, how people think of labor. And I would say that um, I think it's it's relatively plain that this is just simply not the case. Um, We would not have all of the tremendous uh, productivity and plenty that we have today if it weren't for the Benedictine monks convincing uh, Europe, essentially, that um, work was a good thing for them and that saving was a good thing. And uh, that those monks uh, did so much work and provided uh, capital for uh, the communities around them. So work is, is more than simply a thing we don't like. Uh, something that that uh, has its own disutility um, that we trade off against something we do like. So I will say that this general attitude manifests itself in a lot of ways, and so one of those is on the side of trade. And so you'll you'll often see, at least recently, uh, certain people who are. Uh, very interested in the issues of international trade will say something like the following exports are not a benefit exports are the cost and imports are the benefits okay well you know strictly speaking as far as it goes in terms of consumer goods fine yeah uh, uh exports are a cost uh what's then implied from this what's drawn from this what's uh what, what, what the implication of this from, from defenders of the so-called free trade is that, um, well, then that means that we shouldn't prefer policies that restrict, ex, uh, excuse me, restrict imports from other countries in an effort to um, boost domestic production. We shouldn't have government policies that uh, promote exports in an effort to boost domestic production. Uh, But of course, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with providing some kind of policy that seeks to provide some kind of stability to people. Because of course, yeah, in the long run, for the average person, exports are the cost, imports are the benefits. But the reality is that those imports might be a serious problem for some people. Uh, take example. Uh, take an example. Of the, the recent um, trade battle with China. Um, you know, President Trump has been getting criticized because of this back and forth he has with President Xi Jinping, and the the supposed harm that it's creating for uh, certain markets in the U.S. As this trade deal is going. And so, what's happening is that you know Trump is attempting to correct the trade deficit, which I don't really want to address right now, uh, the concept of the trade deficit, but he's trying to correct the trade deficit um, in part using um, tariffs uh, on Chinese goods, increasing tariffs on Chinese goods. <clears throat> and you know, China is retaliating and increasing. This is sort of the, the predicted way these things go. But it's kind of interesting that if you look at the numbers, this, this trade war that we're having right now really isn't affecting hardly anybody at all. Um, it's it's For the average person, it's a very minimal reduction in their annual uh, income, their annual share of uh, gross domestic product. But what's actually happening is concretely on certain populations, certain groups of people that produce these goods or that... Um, that need the goods from China that we're putting tariffs on for their own production processes. They are being hurt by this. And so what, what you have is then a, a very interesting situation where you have a group of people saying that we shouldn't have um, trade wars. And see, this is what happens when we have a trade war is that, you know, the average person uh, is, is harmed. And look at these specific groups and how harmed they are. And so it's, it just strikes me as a little strange that when they want to argue against a trade war, it's perfectly fine for them to say, to, to point to specific groups and how they're affected and say, look, you know, these people who need, uh, you know, I just pick something steel from China for their production process. Now, because of these tariffs, the price of steel's going up and, and it's making it harder for them to do business. Okay, well, then if you can point to that one specific group as a complaint about the effects of the trade war itself, then why can't I point to specific groups and say, look, these people are harmed because their jobs or their production processes are harmed when we lower those barriers. It's, it's not as if there is some kind of default position on this. And even if you were to say something like, well, just strictly the economic, you know, policies or strictly the the, the laws of economics, well, there is no such thing. Everything, every policy has to take into account not only financial effects um, and, and beyond that, the average financial effect, but also the variation in the financial impacts across different populations it has to take into account moral considerations, for instance, trading, allowing trade with a country that uh, has concentration camps and murders people um, just in, in you know, on a whim, you know, not in some kind of military maneuver, but just rounding up people and killing them. Um, there's a moral dimension. There's a sovereignty dimension. Uh, you know, should the U.S. just capitulate its uh, ability to regulate so that it can uh, lower trade barriers. See, the problem is these things don't fit neatly into some kind of economic equation. But they're extremely important. And a lot of them are more important than this, this uh, average effect on the average American, which is nonsensical. There is no average effect on the average American. That might be a convenient way to explain it or to, to express it or compare it to some other event. But in terms of its actual effect on people, it doesn't say anything. Some people are harmed immensely by it, and, some, and most people are not affected at all. But that doesn't mean that we should just look at that average effect and say, this is why we should not have a policy. This is why we should not have tariff barriers. This is why we should not um, you know, impede trade with China. It makes perfect sense to impede trade with China on all of these different things, on all these different margins, whether it's sovereignty, uh, morality in terms of China's uh, communist, murderous communist regime, um, preserving jobs for some of our uh, most negatively affected populations in the U.S. Uh, you know, people in these cities and in Appalachia and in other areas of the country need employment they need jobs and the reality is that capital specificity being what it is in other words you know you build a pizza hut building it's got to you know it's got to generate pizzas right or you build a fact that's a bad example (laughs) but you know you build a factory for making shoes and you can't just the next day you can't just convert that factory into uh, you know making machine guns it just doesn't work that way and so the interim there that this you know we like innovation we like creative destruction But there is a cost to be weighed, and when the benefit is so nebulous and so difficult to measure and so uh, just tenuous, then why would we uh, just automatically ignore the possibility of implementing a policy that would help these populations that have had their jobs um, offshored or... That, um, uh, you know, I mean, to go back to my Tucker Carlson episode, uh, why would we, why wouldn't we just disallow, uh, certain types of innovation? Why wouldn't we just disallow automatic self-driving trucks? Just disallow them. That's okay. People need some kind of stability in some way and the trade-off for innovation just may not be what you think it should be, right? Maybe a a moral choice there, a better choice, is simply to say that, no, stability matters a little bit more than we have given it credit for. And so we need some wisdom to adjust that trade-off. Another thing I want to talk about, and I'll put a link to a couple of articles on this, is this concept of breadwinner jobs. I've been really intrigued by this because... um, It's come from a guy named David Stockman, who was in President Reagan's cabinet. And in recent years, he has become sort of a financial guru, and he has talked about the employment data in a very interesting fashion. And I want to bring up this one statistic that he says... Uh, so he, he he says he looks at the the employment data and he he adds a group a set of different types of jobs together and calls them breadwinner jobs. In other words, jobs that would be able to support a family with one income, uh, which you know is is sort of the ideal that a lot of us hold, right? This is what we want uh, people to be able to maintain. Um, and so he he adds a bunch of things together, like um, you know. Uh, maybe supervisory factory workers or something like that, white collar, um, and different, uh, you know, engineering and different kinds of, uh, blue collar jobs that are, that are fairly well paid. Um, and he calls these breadwinner jobs. And then he takes a look at the monthly employment statistics that you get. Um, you know, every month we, we, there's a, uh, on uh, the first Friday of the month, last Friday of the month, something like that. We are treated to, you know, this discussion of, um, job changes from previous months and uh, there's always adjustments to previous numbers and and stuff like that. But what's interesting is that he says that the, uh, between 2001 and mid 2018. And again, I'll provide links to this stuff. One, one, one article will have sort of the definition of breadwinner jobs. The other one will have, uh, this statistic that I'm going to try to summarize for you. So I don't have it right in front of me. Um, between 2001 and mid 2018, there were there was a basically a one percent increase in so-called breadwinner jobs, um, and what that what that comes out to is about 5,000 jobs per month, which sounds like a lot until you hear how big the workforce increased over that same time period. So from sometime in 2001 till mid 2018, the the labor force increased by 220,000 people. So we have 5,000 new breadwinner jobs on average per month, and we have 220,000 more people in the workforce per month. Uh, that math doesn't work out for me. So, you know, we can look at these employment statistics and they can, be, they can seem really good. But if the issue is that someone has two or three jobs that are uh, very unstable and have very low, uh, very low salaries, very poor benefits, etc., then you're not lending any kind of stability to the basic unit of society, which is the family. Uh, so I think uh, there's there's a lot more to get out of Stockman's concept of breadwinner jobs. And I hope uh, that I can uh, maybe provide some more information and discuss this a little bit more later. But I will, I will give you these links. And check out, uh, let's see, David Stockman's Contra Corner, I think is his website, something like that um i'll i'll find that that's his website david stockman's Contra corner is his website but i'll, I'll try to find a couple other links for some of this stuff um and he he often has charts about employment and discusses things in this in this manner with this breadwinner jobs concept so the last thing i want to say is i want to address some you know so-called solutions to Uh, some of the employment problems we have these days. And I want to do that in the form of kind of a supply and demand discussion. And I know that's tough uh, in an audio format, but just sort of close your eyes and envision a supply and demand uh, graph. You know, you have price on the vertical axis. You have uh, quantity on the horizontal axis. You have that supply curve shifting, or excuse me, uh, going up from the left to the right. And you have that demand curve going down from the left to the right. And so imagine in this market, right, the price is actually uh, a wage. Quantity is uh, labor hours, a number of labor hours. The supply curve it comes from the people who are offering their labor services in the market. And the demand curve is the um the the demand for employment by employers uh you know people who want to hire um your labor so what's interesting to me is that we we have these discussions about um what what is what is ailing the average worker in the u.s what kind of what kind of labor market reforms can we have that will help these people and so we get various things, and, and I've, I think I've discussed some of these things before. Uh, for instance, you know, uh, this whole paid parental leave thing. So what does is, what is paid parental leave do? Um, if you expand that dramatically um, and give people, you know, several months with their newborn child, um, then the, the, the theory, the, I would say, economically uninformed theory, is that, well, then, you know, these people uh, will become better parents because they'll have more time to spend with their kids. And so working will not be such a hindrance for them. Um, But on the contrary, I would say that all this does is reduce the opportunity cost of providing your labor services. It simply gives you the idea that, um, or it enforces the idea that you can do both. You can be a great parent and you can work full-time. Uh, that you don't need to have one parent in the home with the children. You don't need to have a single breadwinner providing for the family. And I think that's a huge problem. So what do we get? Well, we get a supply shift. What would we get if we implemented this thing? Well, we would get a huge shift to the right of the supply curve, and that would push wages down if the demand curve didn't shift. Um, and and as, I, as I've said previously on this subject, the other thing you get is you get an underclass of people whose, uh, whose only job is to jump around to all these other jobs that other people have left for nine months or 12 months or whatever their, their paid parental leave is uh, with the guarantee that they'll be able to come back. So you have, uh, you know, for instance, you have Sally who has a full-time job with an employer. And then she leaves for nine months and she's guaranteed to have her position back at the end of that nine months when she's done, you know, dealing with her newborn child. Um, and so then Susan comes in and Susan uh, works for a temp agency and comes in and works for those nine months. And then she's just back out in the street. She has to go find another job. Well, I mean, I don't want the creation of such an underclass of people named Susan. I mean, this is terrible. Why would I want that? Um, you know, and this is a, this is an obvious consequence of the situation. Uh, Canada is a perfect example. And I know one of my other, uh, sometimes co-hosts Levi Breederland, uh, has, has confirmed this with me, um, that these things do exist in Canada where they have, uh, a very generous paid parental leave policy. So maybe there are ways to, um, shift the demand curve to the right to, to increase wages um, or to improve the stability of wages or something like that. Um, but I think the clearest thing is to find a way to shift the supply curve of labor to the left. Push it up. This is how we raise wages. And there's a few ways you can do that. We can talk about George Borjas's work on um, immigration and how that affects especially low paid workers uh, check out chapter 7 of his book We Wanted Workers George Borjas, a Harvard economist um, great work a very interesting look at the statistics and the data on the Mariel Boatlift specifically but but also other, um, other things so again chapter 7 uh, We Wanted Workers by George Borjas the other way to to shift the supply curve to the left is to look to countries like Hungary and Poland, um, who you know have have been very successful in their sort of pronatalist policies, and and so one thing I can think of is just simply to pay one of the parents who stays home with the children, just explicitly pay them for doing that. I'm not sure if this is implemented in Hungary or whatever, but I'm just saying this is this would be a pronatalist type policy, pay someone to stay home to take care of their children. So if they're married, they have children, uh, you know, you check a few boxes. I mean, this isn't difficult with current IRS uh, reporting requirements. Uh, and just explicitly give them a payment or maybe give them a negative income tax or something. I don't know. It, it doesn't really matter uh, in my mind. I think those are the, either ways of that are, are perfectly fine. Maybe there's some problems with the negative income tax to some extent, but some kind of explicit subsidy. And what that does is it raises the opportunity cost. Of providing labor services in the market it shifts the supply curve of labor up and that drives wages up it's the only way to do it you're not going to raise wages you're not going to promote family financial stability by reducing the opportunity cost of labor by pushing more people into the labor market it's just asinine it's not going to happen So, uh, again, those are just three quick thoughts on labor and how the economics profession treats labor. Of course, as an economist, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy with the economics profession. I think uh, there's a lot of wonderful people. I just think they're misguided on some things. I think they're wrong about some things. And I think labor and its moral status and its importance in um, providing for and building families and communities is uh, underappreciated uh so i hope this has been helpful i hope if you're if you're someone who is uh kind of engaged in in discussions about these types of issues i hope this has helped you uh, focus your thoughts a little bit i of course i welcome any comments questions concerns um you know uh, objections uh just put a comment on our youtube channel or um, hit us up on twitter at TradDads. Uh, so again this has been levi russell thanks for your time Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.